This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Beck. Today is Friday. Yud Bet Bishvat, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Pashat Bishalach. In Pashat Bishalach, in the beginning of the Pasha, we have a Pasuk that is seemingly completely out of place. Pasuk Yud Chet, which is the very beginning of the Pasha, it says, Vayasev Elohim et Am Derech Hamidbar Yamsuf, it says that God turned the people away from the short path. He took them in Derech Hamidbar, the way of the desert. Yam Suf. Derech Hamidbar Yam Suf. Goes through Yam Suf. That's the path that they're on. Two psukim later, it explains what that means. They left Sukkot. So the first step in this journey, God has laid out this long path, and the first step is from Sukkot to Etam, the beginning of the desert. In between those two Pesukim comes a Pasuk, which in itself is not difficult, but its placement is very difficult. Moshe took the bones of Yosef with him because Yosef had imposed an oath on the Jews saying, God will redeem you and save you someday and you should take my bones with you. The Pasuk itself is a very nice Pasuk. It tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he left uh, Mitzrayim, took the bones of Yosef with him. But this Pasuk comes in between two other Pasukim, which are extremely close. Two Pasukim which are describing the path of Bnei Yisrael from Mitzrayim, setting out on the journey towards Eretz Yisrael. That's what the beginning of this Pasha is back. So one Pasuk says that God is sending them, Derech HaMidbar Yam Suf, and then it says, Vayisu misukot vayachanu be'itam b'ktzei HaMidbar. They're on their way. They're now in the edge of the Midbar, the way which will lead them to Yam Suf. And we know what's going to happen in the continuation of the, of the, of the Pasha. And in the middle, Pasuk Yutet, between Yutchet and Kaf, the 19, 19th verse of this parak says that Moshe Rabbeinu took the bones of Yosef. What is this Pasuk doing here? Put it someplace else. Put it before the Pasha. Put it at the end of the Pasha. What does it have to do with the fact that they are going not through the way of the Plishtim, but through the way of the desert, through Yamsuf. Baruch Epstein, the author of the Torah Tamima, answers this question by reference to a medrash on the Pasuk, Pasuk in Tehilim, which we say in Halel, Hayam Ra'a Vayanos Hayadein Tisov Le'achor. Chazal asks, what does it mean, Hayam Ra'a Vayanos? The sea saw and retreated. What did the sea see? What did the sea see and then retreated? The sea split because God told it to split. What did it see and recoil or retreat? So the, the, the Medrash answers, the sea saw the bones of Yosef being carried by Moshe. And then, and then it split. Apparently, the Medrash is saying that the sea didn't want to split, even though God had decreed that it should, and Moshe Rabbeinu stood at the edge of the sea. And according to a different Midrash, Nachshon ben Aminadab jumped into the sea. The sea didn't want to split, but then it saw the bones of Yosef, and see the word in the Pasuk, Vayanos. It didn't just split, it ran away. In other words, the bones of Yosef forced, it, forced the sea to flee from before Moshe, and that's how the splitting of the Dead Sea took place. So therefore, Rabbi uh, Baruch says, that's why 
this pasuk comes where it comes because it explains the path of B'nai Yisrael. God said they should go Derech HaMidbar Yamsuf. God said they should go through the way of the desert through Yamsuf. How are they going to do that? Oh, because Moshe Rabbeinu takes the bones of Yosef with him. And therefore, they now leave Eitam and they go to the edge of the Midbar on the way to Yamsuf. In other words, when it says they're going Derech Yamsuf, Derech HaMidbar Yamsuf, you will ask, that's impossible, Yamsuf is an impenetrable barrier for them. And the answer is no, no, they're going through Yamsuf and Moshe takes Yosef's bones, which will be their ticket, which will be their way, to, in fact, to breach, the, to breach the sea. Okay, that's a very nice thought. The question that it raises, though, is somewhat more serious, but, but why? In other words, why, in fact, is the way to breach Yamsuf the bones of Yosef? What, what are Chazal trying to tell us? And why is the sea more impressed by the bones of Yosef than by the need of the Jews and the word of God and the staff of, the staff of Moshe? So I think the reason is really clear if we understand the position of Yosef vis-à-vis his brothers in Egypt, as well as the meaning of Kriyat Yamsuf in, in Chazal. Whenever Chazal want to mention a paradigm for a miracle, they'll say Kriyat Yamsuf. And not just an example of a very impressive miracle, something that's very spectacular. But they use it to indicate a very difficult miracle, a miracle that was hard to perform. Now, obviously, theologically, that doesn't make any sense at all. There are no hard miracles. If God is the source of all miracles, it's not hard. He can do anything. And therefore, it's not intrinsically more difficult to split the Red Sea than it would be to, uh, to have a flying ant. But nonetheless, Chazal will use this phrase. They'll say, Kasheh, Something or other, kikriyat yamsuf. Kasher zivugan shel Yisrael, kikriyat yamsuf. They need God's ability to create, to be a matchmaker, to create matches between, among the Jews, is as difficult as kriyat yamsuf. Why is kriyat yamsuf the paradigm for Chazal of a difficult, of a difficult miracle? I think the answer is because Chazal saw the splitting of the sea and they understood that this perhaps was the reason that what God was trying to show the world or the Jews and the Egyptians, when he split the Red Sea, the splitting of the sea put the water in a position that was totally unnatural and, and basically wrong for the water to be. The nature of water is to go down. Water comes from the sky and falls on the earth. And when it comes into a basin, it gets accumulated in the basin, what we call a sea. That water should stand is, is, against, is against the nature of water. It's not just that God did something which is unusual or impressive. What God did in Kriyat Yamsuf was for a certain period of time to change water. Tell water, you're not water. You're going to be something else. You're going to be a wall. As the Pasuk says, lahem choma. Literally, and the water became a wall. So the water is not water. It becomes a wall. And not that again, not that that's difficult for God. It's no, difficult, it's no more difficult than it is creating the water in the first place. Uh, miracles are just an expression of creation. But, but as an example to us, of what can be done in the world, Kriyat Yamsuf means that God doesn't only have to work with nature, but He can literally stand nature on its head. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is that the water is upset. The water says, why should I live a life of falsehood? Why should I be foreign to my own nature just to let the Jews pass? Find another way to let the Jews pass. And the answer to that question is, the bones of Yosef. Why the bones of Yosef? Because Yosef was the individual who lived 
a life that was foreign to his nature. Yosef was the individual who was Ganov Gunafti Ne'eretz Ha'ivim. I was stolen away from my father's house. He who was his father's favorite son, who learned Torah with his father, who was the darling of the family. The one who got the many, the many colored coat, the Ketonet HaPasim. He was stolen away, sent to a totally foreign land, and he lived there for the rest of his life. Most, many of those years without his family. Even after his family comes to Egypt, they at least live in Goshen. They live as Jews. He continues to live as an Egyptian. He dresses as an Egyptian. He talks as Egyptian. His job is to be Egyptian. Yosef lives a life that is indeed unnatural for him. It goes against his nature. It's foreign. He's in, he's in disguise the entire time. He's alienated from himself. And therefore, Moshe's, Yosef's bones are an answer to, to the sea. In two senses. One, he says, if I can do it, you can do it. If God's will and God's wisdom leads to a situation where I have to live in Egypt and not in Eretz Kena'an, and not in Israel, and not in my father's house, and not in my father's ways, and not in my father's clothing, and not the way I myself am, then, then that's what I did, so you can do it too. But even more deeply, I think there's a, there's a deeper sense here. Because... What does it say in the Pasuk? It says that Moshe Rabbeinu took the bones of Yosef. Why? Ki Yosef had imposed this oath on the Jews. He hadn't merely said, take my bones with you. He said to them, God will, God will remember, redeem you, and therefore take my bones with you. Yosef had promised the Jews hundreds of years in advance What does it mean pakot? Pakot literally means to remember. But to remember and to come and do something. Pakot means to remember and to fix, to return. Pakot yifkod elokim etchem means that God will return you to Eretz Yisrael. In other words, Yosef, he who was the stranger in a strange land in Mitzrayim, is the one who had made the promise, who had said, whose words we, 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 we go over and repeat. He had said, God mends and returns things to where they should be. So therefore, Yosef's bones are not merely an example to the sea to act like Yosef, but also a promise. If you're asked to do something that is against your nature, but there's a promise that God indeed makes sure things return to where they really should be. And in response to that, both the example and the promise, so the Red Sea, the dead, the Red Sea split, agreed to be split. It saw Yosef's life and Yosef's example and remembered Yosef's words. And it, it fled, retreated, recoiled, and allowed the Jews and allowed the Jews to cross. And therefore, it's not merely an explanation of the splitting of the Red Sea, but it's in fact a basic promise that lies at the base of the redemption, of the redemption of Egypt and of all redemptions. 
that God has given a promise. God makes sure that things return to where they should be. The Jews will return to Eretz Yisrael. The, the water will, will go back to its, to, its, to its strength, the way it should be, as the verse says later on in the Pasha. Everything comes back to where it should be, even if for a short period of time or a long period of time or perhaps hundreds of years, it has wandered and been forced to be in situations which are foreign to it. But the promise of redemption is based on, among other things, is based on Pekida, remembering where you're supposed to be and putting the situation back, mending the situation to reflect the way things really, really should be. At this point, I should be introducing our guest for this Erev Shabbat program. And here I have an admission to make and basically an apology. Uh, this, has been, this has been a difficult week here in Alonshvot. We've had more than one funeral and more than one Nichum Avilim. That's the bad part. And somehow these things crept up and I didn't have a chance to actually organize this program the way it should be organized. There's also a good side. This Shabbat, Nishivat Havetzion, is a Shabbat, a special Shabbat dedicated to the topic of Geula, of redemption. And it already started on Thursday. We had some guest speakers and a symposium at night. And I was involved in that as well. So between the difficult part and the good part, I have not arranged a proper program for this Erev Shabbat program. Despite those excuses I just gave, it's my fault. I'm guilty. And I apologize now. This program will be shorter. I didn't want to cancel the program altogether. This is the first time that we haven't maintained the proper schedule in, uh, in KMTT. And it will not be, I hope, a, 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 a sign of things to come. But there is no guest for this program. The middle section of today's program, between the introduction and Al Chayumid, you just heard. It's an apology. You can look at it as a kind of Musa. Instead of my having a guest uh, speak about the Pasha, I'm giving Musa, not to you, I'm giving Musa to myself, but you're all invited to share in it. And therefore, we now proceed to today's Halacha Yomit. The, uh, talking about Kriyachma, there's a Halacha in, mentioned in the Gemara, quoted in the Shulchan Aruch. Doesn't, it's not well known because it doesn't have that much practical ramification, except occasionally. The Gemara says, Ha'omer modim modim mishtakinoto. If somebody, meaning a chazan, says, when he's repeating the Shemon out loud, modim modim, he says modim twice, as mishtakinoto, we silence him. That means we fire him, we, 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 we take him away, we don't let him be the chazan. The Gemara then says, the same thing is true for Ha'omer Shmashma. If you say Shema twice, was also Mishtakinoto. The Gemara then quotes a, a, a writer that has the same idea, but doesn't say Mishtakinoto. Uh, so the word distinguishes between whether he repeats the whole Pasuk or just one word. They're both bad. In the end, uh, the Mechaber Pasuk and Shulchan Aruch, he doesn't need to distinguish. He says, you don't repeat 
a word twice, Shema Shema, you don't say Shema Yisrael the whole Pasuk twice, you're not supposed to do it. Why not? Why can't you say Modem Modem or Shema Shema? It appears as though there are two powers, although the person believes in two powers, meaning two gods, or two deities, or two, 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 two strengths, two powers. And therefore, if anyone does that, we, we, we fire him, we take him away. This halach is quoted in Shulchan Aruch. It right away raises a problem as to what would happen if you, if you had to say it twice. Why would you have to say it twice? Well, because the first pasuk of Shema must be said with kavanah. In order to be Yotzeh, the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema. Kriyat Shema isn't saying words, it's, it's, it's reciting, it's, it's, it's declaiming, it's proclaiming the meaning of Shema. And therefore you need Kavanah both to the meaning of the words and to the inherent idea of Shema, uh, Pledge of Allegiance to God, we call Kabbalat Omer Chut Shemaim. So suppose you said Shema, but you didn't have Kavanah. You realize later on that you had said the words, but you hadn't said Kavanah. You hadn't used Kavanah. You're not Yotzeh Kriyat Shema, you have to say it again. But the Gemara says, you can't say it again, because you're not going to say Shema twice. So the Yechonim discussed this, this problem. The Yechonim would think, under such, a, under such a situation, there is no Isa. You're not saying it twice because you want to say it twice. You're saying it twice because you have to. The first one doesn't count. So it's okay. Then there were Yechonim who added reasons how to, how to permit it. For instance, the Bach says, you can pause between them. If you say Shema Shema, you are pledging allegiance to two gods. But if you say it and you pause in between a certain amount of time, then it's okay. How much time? No one knows for sure. Some uh, have thought that you should leave the amount of time it would take to finish the entire chapter, the entire parak, Shema and Ve'ahavta. Logically, I don't think that's really true. I think you have to have the amount of time that it doesn't appear to be if I was talking to two people and saying, I believe in you, I believe in you, it would be right after, one after the other. The amount of time that goes by that someone who hears it wouldn't put the two sentences together. So that's one point in the Bach. Another point in the Bach is that if you say it quietly, it says, It appears to be two powers. It appears to whom? To someone else, to people who are listening. And therefore, if you have to say it twice, say it quietly. Other achronim claim that perhaps the whole prohibition is only betzibur. Remember, the original halacha was modim modim. That was specifically talking about a chazan. That's the whole context of the Gemara there. Mishtakinoto, we silence him. You don't, you don't silence yourself. You silence the person who you've sent to be the chazan. So the original context is betzibur. So achronim think the whole issue is betzibur because the sensitivity of chazal, that you might sound as though you accepted two powers has to do with doing it in public. If you're more or less in private, you don't really believe in two powers, it just sounds like you might have believed in two gods. Uh, it's not a problem. So that's a third, a third, uh, a, a third hetar. Allah some uh, I think the Ochashokhan says that if you have to repeat Shema twice, so do it, but throw together all the different kula together. Say it quietly, with a pause, and and do it be a chidut, not be not be not be tzibur, not not in not in public. Okay, so that's that's a halacha. It's relatively rare, but it, that's a that's a halacha. The Beit Yosef quotes an opinion that says it's not only modim modim and shema shema. The two examples brought in the Gemara. So, for instance, you know what to say, Amen, Amen. Once again, you're 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 saying Amen to God. 
So if you say it twice, it's Mirzik Ishtayushia. The Beit Yosef himself rejects this opinion. He says he doesn't think so. It's against the Gemara. Agama doesn't mention it. Therefore, it's not true. Choram pointed out that it is mentioned explicitly in the Yushalmi. The Yushalmi says, Amen, Amen, you should not say. It could still be a machloket, a dispute between Yushalmi and the Bavli. We pass like the Bavli. That's what Rabbi Yaakov Emden says. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, it's true, it's Yushalmi, but the Gemara is against it. And therefore, the reason is because there's nothing wrong with Amen. Amen. Shema, Shema is a special thing. It's the declaration of faith. Modim, modim, you're speaking directly to God. Amen. So he says, you agree. If you agree twice, you agree even more. And in fact, he recommends saying Amen, Amen, specifically where at the end of Shemon Esrei, Rabbi Yaakov Eden says, the best thing is to say, Yiyu leratzon imrei fi, begyon nebi lefanech, Hashem tzuri begoalei, Amen ve'amen. It's not just not, it's not prohibited, it's even recommended. But there are many Achronim who thought that the Yisur really exists. One should not say, Amen, Amen. It's a complicated question, why? Because at least two places in Tanakh, we find someone saying, Amen, Amen. One is in Pashat Sota, in the Torah, when the priest, when the Kohen, imposes an oath on a sota, she answers, Amen, Amen. On the other end of Tanakh, in Sefer Nechemiah, you have an assembly of the Jews who receive the Torah, they receive mitzvot, and they answer, they have a brit, they sign a covenant with God, and they answer, Amen, Amen. So some of them say there's a difference between Amen, Amen, and Amen, Amen. When you put in the Vav, when you put in the And, so you're not saying it to two different people, you're saying it to one person, Amen, twice. Amen, ve Amen means yes, and even more so yes. Whereas if you said Amen, Amen, then it seems like you're addressing two different, two different edges. So Amen, ve Amen is better than, is better than Amen. Um, there's another interesting point that's made by some Achronim, that the word Amen has two different uses. Amen means yes, but it has two different uses. If I say Amen after a bracha, it means I agree. You're required, I'll be then. If you hear a bracha, you must answer Amen. This person has said something to God. He said, he's made a bracha. Blessed are you who, who has brought bread out of, the, out, of the, out of the ground because he wants to eat bread. You either agree or you don't agree. You say Amen to say, I also, I agree. I also wish to bless God even though I'm not eating bread. There's another Amen that's not said after a bracha, but it's said after a request. If I say that I would like this and this and this and this, Amen means, and yes, that's what I want. So some of them say that if you say Amen, Amen, but once you meet it in the first sense, once you meet it in the second sense, there's no problem. Because the problem is only if you say the same thing exactly twice, who are you addressing? You're addressing two different gods. But if you say two different things, even if it's the same word, there would be no problem. So for instance... In a, if it was a bracha, which was a request. Let's say you heard somebody make a bracha, where he's asking God to send him a cure, but he finishes by saying, Baruch Ata Hashem, Amo Yisrael. So you can answer Amen to the bracha and Amen to the request. Okay, so this, I don't know how much halacha the it is, it's an important point because the halacha is quoted in Shulchan The Mechaber says there is no problem, Amen, Amen. The Ramah says there is a problem. As I pointed out of Yaakov Emdin Paskins against the Ramah, and says you can say Amen ve Amen. And other Akhwarim say, well maybe Amen ve Amen, not Amen Amen. Maybe it depends on the context. Uh, there's a certain sensitivity involved, but as I pointed out, the Apsukim, which have it, and makes it a very difficult uh, thing to say that it's a sur 
when we find that the Jews did it in the time of Nehemiah, unless you'll think of some way to distinguish between between the two cases. There's a discussion, Yachonim, whether or not once you got to Amen Amen, maybe it applies to everything. You should never repeat something twice, immediately, without a pause, because if you're speaking to God and you repeat it twice, it sounds like you're speaking to two people. So that's not in the Bavli or the Yushami, but if we already extended it from Modim to Shema, from Shema to Amen, maybe you should keep going. So I don't think anyone actually paskets Allah Chalamaisa this way, but, but it's a consideration when discussing uh, possible Nuschaot, whether one should do it. Uh, in Shema, it's Allah Chalamaisa, the minute, a very ancient minute of saying Shema Yisrael at the end of Yom Kippur, at the end of Ne'ilah. So we showed him already say, not twice. But only once, because it's Shema. On the other hand, we say also an ancient minute of saying Hashem Hu Elokim seven times, and that could really sound like multiple, multiple powers, multiple gods. You're saying Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashem Hu Elokim. Maybe each one of them is seven different gods. So there, Tosfos defends it. He says, "It's not what you mean. You mean to to ascend from God as King over this world, and over the next world, and over the higher world, and therefore it's okay." In other words, the, the question arose. There's a certain sensitivity involved, but you're able to sometimes manage to get away with it. Shema, which is explicit, so the Torah says, don't say Shema twice, only once, which is our minute, that's what's in the Machzorim. Shema Yisrael, only one time. I'd like to add that I think that since the prohibition in the Gemara is a prohibition of Merzik, it is true that the Gemara is very sensitive to that because it was a real, live option in the time of the Talmud. There, was, there were actual sects that had they were dualistic. They had two powers. The problem arises because of good and evil. How do we explain the nature of evil in the world? And the simplest answer is the answer in, in Bavel, the, the Gemara Babli, it was the official religion of Bavel. Zoroastrianism recognizes two gods, a god of good and a god of evil. And even in Eretz Yisrael, the, the kataminim, the Gnostics, the dualism has a very basic function in religious philosophy, because it does solve certain problems. Today, it's not a live option. If you heard a chazan say, modem, modem, none of us would imagine or suspect him of being a dualist. It's, it's not exactly a, something which people belong to. Unless one claims that one shouldn't view it in terms of actual sex, but in terms of philosophy. The philosophy of dualism, whether people admit it or not, is in fact a very attractive one. Um, one might be officially a theist, a monotheist, and yet we do find people more, I think, in Christianity than in Jews, who relate to evil as being a powerful force that at least practically speaking in this world is, is sort of equal to God. We know that we all believe that God is supreme of everything. But, but practically speaking, you have, even in Judaism, you have the concept of a sitra achra, the other, the other side. And sometimes in Kabbalah, it's related to as though it were, practically speaking, powerful. A, a reshut, a power. And, and I think the reason is because dualism does, in fact, lie deeply in the soul of man. Even if we, we've been trained to be monotheists, but you come across powers that appear to be against God, against what we want, and, and there's a natural tendency of people to divide the world into two. So maybe, even if there isn't a sect, one should uh, nonetheless be suspicious or be, be try to uproot any possible mention or reference or even a hint to this kind of philosophy. Again, I think Allah Chalamaisa, although the halacha is quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, 
and, and, and we follow it, but in terms of applying it to more situations and widening its reach and being machmer, so my, my feeling is you shouldn't, you don't have to be machmer, it's not a real, it's not a real problem, it's more of a halacha, which is quoted, which is, which is sukkah, good enough to run around looking for more ways in which to extend it. Unless, as I said before, unless one views it as a philosophic problem and not merely a sectarian, a sectarian problem. As I said, that's it for today. Finishing a little bit early. I'm sorry, I apologize again. And it's a shame it won't happen again. This is KMTT. Wishing you a Shabbat Shalom Umvorach. Next week on Monday, we'll return to our regular scheduled programming. Monday, Shia will be by Rabbi Yayakan. Next Friday, in Hashem, we'll have a serious and hopefully even better than usual. Try to make it up. Erev Shabbat program. Till then, Shabbat Shalom. Migush Etzion, from Yeshivat HaRetzion. This is Ezra Bek. And this was KMTT. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim.